Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Today's episode is part three of a three-part series that gives you an inside look at how the United Nations is commemorating its 75th anniversary this year. Rather than holding a big party or a jubilee, the UN is instead embarking on a listening tour. The UN is seeking feedback from as many people in as many communities as possible, all around three big questions. What kind of world do we want to create? Are we on track? And what is needed to bridge the gap? Here in the United States, the United Nations Association is hosting what are called global consultations around these big questions. They are gathering groups to solicit input that will be relayed to leadership at the United Nations ahead of a major meeting in September to mark the UN's anniversary. In part one of this series, I moderated a global consultation that discussed those big questions, but using the lens of gender equality. In part two, we explored these questions in the context of climate and the environment. And today, I moderate a consultation about global health. This episode kicks off with my 15-minute interview of Kate Dodson, Vice President for Global Health at the United Nations Foundation. We, of course, discuss the COVID-19 pandemic, specifically how the World Health Organization and other United Nations entities are responding. We also discuss what reforms might make the WHO more effective at responding to future global health emergencies. After that interview concludes, the consultation begins. And for the podcast, I edited down this part to include some of the questions I asked and some of the answers that were discussed. So if you did not get a chance to participate in any of these consultations in person, uh, you can still contribute to the effort by filling out a survey. I've posted a link to the survey in the show notes of this episode, and I encourage you to fill it out. Thank you, and thank you to UNA USA for partnering with the podcast around these series of episodes to give you an inside look into how the UN is commemorating its 75th anniversary. Enjoy. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Welcome all from UNA USA who are 
participating in today's consultation. I am very pleased to kick off this consultation with a conversation with Kate Dodson about global health. Now, today we can't talk about global health without focusing on the pandemic we are all experiencing. Uh, So Kate, to kick off our conversation, can you describe where are we in this pandemic? How has COVID-19 evolved over the last several months and what parts of the world are being hardest hit right now? Well, thanks, Mark, for having me. Thanks to the UNA team for organizing this session. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, And it's a great first question. We're now at a place where globally there are more than 7 million infections for COVID and more than 400,000 deaths. Um, This is a a pandemic that is still in the process of getting worse before we hopefully are able to turn the corner and get better. Uh, Some geography, it's been in, this pandemic has come in waves if you speak in geographic terms, you know, as it started in China, as it moved heavily into Europe and the United States. Although, for instance, Europe has started to decrease in the number of cases and kind of steady out, other geographies like Latin America are now on the increase. Um, The pandemic is starting to hit the shores of Africa um, and, uh, you know, worryingly also uh, refugee camps like Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, places uh, where we're in humanitarian context where vulnerable communities live who already don't have access to reliable and steady healthcare, not to mention things like water sanitation and hygiene to practice those good practices of public health. Yeah, I did an episode of the podcast uh, early on in the outbreak with an expert in humanitarian health operations who uh, led a study, a modeling study of what would happen if COVID-19 took hold in Cox's Bazaar in a large refugee camp uh, in Bangladesh featuring a number of Rohingya refugees. And even a small importation of cases led to something like 90% of the camp getting infected. So that seems to be a profound worry right now. It is a profound worry, and it's one that I think we are not yet on the cusp of realizing. It's not too late to still try to get ahead of this. Uh, some of the work that WHO is doing, that the that UNHCR is doing, the UN High Commissioner on Refugees, UNICEF, and others are really working hard to get to these most vulnerable communities, provide them with preventative services now, provide them with interim water sanitation and hygiene solutions so that if and as it arrives on their shores, um, at least there's ability for some resilience inside those camps and other and other refu- uh, refugee and vulnerable settings. So I'm glad you mentioned the WHO, you know, which has become a household name uh, around mm-hmm. the world now suddenly over the course of the last several months. Uh, can you just describe what has the WHO's response to this pandemic looked like and what has it been? WHO is the global coordinating authority on health. With 195 member states, it's a more than a 70-year-old organization that really is, is our best defense against a global pandemic. And from the very beginning, they've been deeply engaged, working on a novel, this novel pathogen, trying to uh, do a number of things. And WHO's role, I'll say, is kind of to put it into is has four buckets. First, to help 
to track and understand the spread of the virus. That is both from an epidemiological perspective, a global surveillance perspective, and in terms of understanding, that's a big research agenda. And really, this is a novel pathogen, one never before seen. So every day, the institution is learning and understanding more about the virus and its spread and retransmitting that information to member states all over the world. Second function, they're ensuring patients get the care that they need and frontline workers get essential supplies and information. WHO has developed more than 90 pieces of technical guidance for um, city public health authorities, for hospital managers, for frontline health workers, clinical care managers, really working to try to do infection prevention and control, to do case treatment, contact tracing, any range of issues. They've got workplace guidance uh, as part of that set of essential technical guidance. But they're also ensuring that frontline workers and patients get directly what they need in terms of health commodities. WHO is responsible for the procurement and distribution of millions of tests and testing kits, globally procured, distributed to 130 countries. Same with PPE, personal protective equipment, things like surgical masks, face shields, gowns, N95 masks that are used by frontline responders and healthcare workers in more than 130 countries. 200 million pieces of personal protective equipment have been procured by WHO to try to eliminate the challenges of the global supply chain bottlenecks that really plagued us in the spring Uh, trying to get PPE to frontline health workers all around the world. They've unlocked that and are now running this global supply chain to try to get those supplies uh, to more than 130 countries. The third function that they have is to help countries expand their healthcare capacity and reduce the impact of the virus, particularly where resources are scarce and amongst the most vulnerable. I think we spoke a little bit about that in the context of refugee setting and other humanitarian crisis. The fourth function, which is really critically important, is accelerating research and development of new treatments, tests, and vaccines for all who need them. There's a lot of energy being put into that. WHO, for instance, or coordinates something called the Global Solidarity Trial. A hundred countries have signed up to simultaneously test the efficacy of, at present, four potential treatments more can roll in as they become developed. If you test them all in a collaborative setting globally, you can test for the efficacy at scale, different demographics, ages, ethnicities, you know, in, in frontline health workers versus, you know, older populations, etc. Doing all that in coordination can reduce the time to get to an effective treatment by up to 80%. That's an unparalleled role that no one else can play but WHO. So I've done a number of these interviews focusing on the World Health Organization, and that is probably about the best and most succinct description of what the WHO is up to in the time of coronavirus. But let me ask you um, a follow-on question to that. You know, the purpose of this consultation is to focus on the world we want. Uh, So what would a more empowered uh, WHO look like? What is this moment telling you about perhaps weaknesses of the WHO that could be uh, strengthened uh, in order to make that organization more able to live up to the hopes and ideals that we're all putting into it right now? Sure. It's a great question. So first of all, I want to actually step back and say we are lucky to have the WHO that we have. 
There was a robust reform process started after the West Africa Ebola outbreak about five years ago that really strengthened the World Health Organization's emergency response capacities. We are benefit, the global community is benefiting from all that work to build a stronger WHO. It is nimble, it's more dynamic, it's more consultative and cooperative across, you know, both member states and non-governmental actors. Um, and it is, uh, it's, it has stronger kind of lines of authority and engagement from its country level offices all the way up to headquarters. We are in a better place in this pandemic because WHO already is stronger. But of course, there's room for improvement and WHO wants to further strengthen its work. Some of the things are things that, you know, WHO as an organization with its own mandate and, you know, the blessing of member states can do. Uh, and some of it would certainly be benefited by additional financing. WHO only has half the amount of financing it needs for COVID response. So strengthening the organization starts with better resources, more fungible resources, resources that aren't directed into um, your highly earmarked projects, but that can be redeployed across the organization. That'd be one way to strengthen it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but another way, you know, that has to be addressed and strengthened is Um, something called the International Health Regulations. It is actually a global legal framework that every government around the world has signed on to. It's about 15 years years old. And that needs to be strengthened as well. One of the things that we've learned in this pandemic is that um, two things I'll I'll highlight maybe for purposes of this conversation. One, um, WHO doesn't have, depends on member states to alert it about novel pathogens, potential health crises, and epidemics. It is WHO is only as strong as the information that member states give it. And in the early days of the pandemic, WHO was eager to get more information out of the government of China, but had to rely on that information that it got in the pace of the information that it got out of China. That slowed response in the early days. So if there are improvements to be made, in IHRs that give the World Health Organization more authority to work with member states and pull out information as it's emerging, that would make us all better prepared, probably would have um, led to a faster response in in this context. The second piece that I'll mention, and, and Dr. Tedros, who is the head of the World Health Organization, its director general, has said this, the, the way that WHO can declare a global emergency is, uh, is something called a, uh, a FIKE, the uh, Programmatic Public Emergency. Health Emergency of International Concern. Exactly. I've uh, seen disputes over how to pronounce that, FIKE <laughs> or FIKE or PHIC. All three. Yeah. <laughs> Probably depends on your, the, your language of origin. <laughs> um, and that is a tool that basically says, is it a global health emergency of international concern or isn't it? That's a really hard black and white distinction. Hmm. And with something emerging like a novel pathogen like COVID is and and was in January, it was hard to say, you know, with only cases, maybe 100 total cases outside of China, was it a global emergency yet or not? Hmm. That the gradation and the ability to have nuance in trying to alert the global community is another area that I think could be strengthened and improved. And WHO has invited that. Thank you. Um, So I I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you about the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund, which I I know you had a hand in helping to bring to to life. Uh, What is that fund? How much has it raised? Where is the money going? 
Sure. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure to have helped lead the establishment of the Solidarity Response Fund, uh, which began in mid-March. And uh, in partner, WHO invited the UN Foundation to establish it together with the Swiss Philanthropy Foundation as the foremost way for non-traditional donors, so non-governmental donors, to contribute directly to the global response that WHO is leading and coordinating. So you're talking about like individuals, companies... Exactly. Individuals, companies, smaller scale philanthropies, nonprofits around the world. And so we set up this fund to do just that. In Since we established it in mid-March, we've raised now uh, $218 million from more than 450,000 individuals from more than 100 countries. That in and of itself is inspiring as a testament to global solidarity and well over 100 companies and foundations and philanthropies. That money is going quickly to principally WHO, but at their request also UNICEF, UNHCR, the Refugee High Commissioner of Refugees, the World Food Program, to do frontline work in response. And we're proud of how much money has already gone out to the field to these partners. More than $150 million has already been redispersed of what we've raised Right now, the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund is one of the largest donors to the World Health Organization. As I mentioned, WHO only has half of the resources that it needs to do its job on COVID. And so it has become a really essential tool in this fight against coronavirus. Um, uh, And although we don't want it to replace the very important and frankly essential role that governments have to play in fully financing WHO, I think what we've demonstrated with this fund is the power that everyday individuals, that actors across the world have in trying to be a part of the solution. Uh, So the audience uh, that are watching us live are made up of people who care about U.S. engagement with the United Nations. And, you know, unfortunately, over the past several months, we've seen the U.S. disengage from the World Health Organization, first in the form of uh, freezing U.S. funding and then a sort of letter indicating U.S. non-participation in the World Health Organization from the Trump administration. How is that being felt inside the WHO right now? So the U.S. government has been probably one of the most important partners for the World Health Organization throughout its existence. It is the largest donor to WHO, both by assessed contributions, which are in essence dues that every government pays to be a part of the World Health Organization, and in voluntary contributions in places where the global health and foreign policy goals of the United States government are fully aligned with the work of the World Health Organization. Polio eradication is probably the foremost example of that. So generously, the U.S. government has has given voluntary funding to WHO on areas of mutual priority, measles, polio, improving access to nutrition, HIV, AIDS, humanitarian relief in places like Yemen for all essential health services for the people who are are in the middle of crisis and conflict. Um, So that's what's at stake, plus the huge huge non-financial part of the partnership. 
the U.S. government through the National Institutes of Health, through the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, other parts of the U.S. government have a deep and rich technical partnership with the World Health Organization that WHO really wants to maintain. It makes WHO faster, smarter to have the benefit of partnership of the technical leadership from the U.S. government. And and I think that's part of what they're most nervous about is losing that support. And they want to make sure that they can try to sustain it and maintain it and frankly strengthen it um, going forward. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Kate. This was very helpful and interesting and I think a useful frame upon which we can launch into the consultation phase of today's program. Uh, So thank you very much for your time. Uh, Pleasure to be with you. And now uh, let us move on to the consultation. Uh, So for today's consultation, we are focusing on three big questions. What kind of future do we want to create? Are we on track to secure a better world? And what action is needed for us to achieve a brighter future? Uh, So today we're going to answer all of those three big questions, but through a global health lens. Uh, Again, raise your hand if you'd like to uh, participate, contribute, uh, so we can hear your voice. The next section, we will discuss if we are on track to advance global health. So we're going to do another poll question. Which of these global trends do you think will most affect the future of global health? And you can choose up to three. So again, we'll give you a minute to select your answer. Climate change and pollution was the top answer, uh, followed by poverty and economic inequalities and a global pandemic. But it was interesting to see that nexus between health and climate change and pollution being uh, particularly relevant to to everyone on this list. Now, that uh, list of potential answers that was in front of you is not comprehensive. Uh, So is there anything else on your mind? What else and other global trends do you think will most affect global health? Go ahead, Shirley. I am from Florida, and I'm wondering if the aging population is something that is really a problem across the world of non-productive people needing a lot of health care and uh, drawing a lot of money from care of younger people. So uh, next we have Lenora, who has her hand raised. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I think that we really have to be mindful of Um, really taking lessons learned from the past, right? And so if we don't take our lessons learned from the past with regard to um, health and, you know, all of the um, guidelines and structures that we've put in place to really combat the things that have really destroyed our populations in the past, Um, And, you know, all the vaccines and all the technologies and advances that have taken place, if we don't support those those structures and keep funding those programs, um, they certainly aren't going to be viable going forward. And so we can't continue to advance when we don't have the technology that's funded or the programs that are funded and those governmental agencies that are willing to continue to collaborate and fund each other. Um, And then when we look at, you know, those programs that are are quite viable, not just in the U.S., but also throughout the world, 
um, if we don't support those programs, then essentially we will kind of go backwards. Um, but more importantly, I think, is transparency around what is really going on with regard to um, some of the things that have occurred um, and trust the people to, to utilize their intellect and be able to deal with, you know, the, the issues that are upon us and to, um, to act intelligently um, as to how they want to move forward and not hide the issues. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have time for uh, another, if there are hands raised. Yes. Pam? Um, not even basic health services can be provided to people in protracted conflict situations such as Syria or Yemen or parts of Afghanistan. I think until the Security Council can actually do its job to end some of these conflicts, we'll never be able to extend even the most basic health care and improve health status of everyone. Thank you. And Mark, we have Michaela who has her hand raised. Thank you. Hi. Um, so I was talking with my friend Manny Anker, who grew up in a refugee camp in Sudan, and he before this call, and he mentioned that he thinks that technological advancements, one of the questions I was surprised wasn't higher up on people's list. Um, he thinks mobile clinics would make an enormous difference in, so similar to what Pam just said in Yemen or Syria or South Sudan, um, how do you think mobile health clinics and having consultations, you know, with more uh, of that access will improve health, global health? Okay, so let's move on. Um, we can talk solutions now. Again, in the Q&A box, please tell me briefly, what would you advise the UN Secretary General do to address global trends that affect global health. Okay, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I just uh, wanted to advise the UN Secretary General that uh, I mean the kind of a work UN is doing should be in the syllabus of every child in every school, so that they should know that how important these institutions and uh, are vital for for our uh, um, to achieve the sustainable goals. They should feel, uh, you know, like uh, they should know at least what kind of work is being done so that uh, uh, so that they know and they should contribute more towards it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have time for another. Rocio. Hi. So I believe that the UN Secretary General um, should fund more new research opportunities and young startups that um, have as a main goal researching um, different health topics such as lifestyle, diabetes and other um, general um, health care effects, uh, which I don't think that right now they're being very well funded. Thank you. Thank you. And we have time for another. Okay. Uh, yeah, I just think as the pandemic vaccine comes out within the next uh, year or two, that uh, those that will be taking the biggest brunt of those trials and stuff like that um, get an uh, equal outlook at uh, the rollout of the vaccine. And uh, we can advocate those as, for that as individuals uh, instead of um, those who are paying for the vaccine and not taking any real um, uh, pain, I guess I could say, in, in uh, creating it. Thank you. 
Thank you. Well, good. Well, well, thank you all for uh, this robust conversation uh, about uh, global health and the future we want as part of a global consultation. Thank you very much to UNA USA for allowing me to moderate and host this conversation. And uh, I'd like to maybe sign off um, by recalling what Rocio answered to the question, what can we do as individuals? She said, uh, we can better educate ourselves. Uh, you know, it's my job as the host of a podcast to help uh, inform people about happenings around the world. The podcast is called Global Dispatches Podcast. My mission is to inform audiences about issues in global affairs that don't necessarily make the headlines, but are nonetheless very important and of particular import to people who care about the United Nations and global cooperation. So please do look for Global Dispatches wherever you find podcasts. Thank you to UNA USA. Thank you all for participating. And now I will turn the floor back over to Rachel Bowen Pittman. Thank you all. And uh, we'll see you later. Thank you, Mark. And thank you everyone for your participation in this global conversation. Once again, your responses and discussion during this critical and important session will be joined by those of people throughout our 50 states compiled into a USA report and submit it to the United Nations. Um, help us to ensure that as every as many Americans as possible can share their voice on behalf of the United States um, by encouraging um, others to participate in upcoming consultations by visiting unausa.org slash UN75. And also, if you're not already a UNAUSA member, I encourage you to text membership to 738-674 to join our movement. UNAUSA is, a, is proud that we as an association have over 20,000 members and more than 200 chapters throughout the United States, which provide opportunities for people to engage in civic action to address such issues as global health, education, climate change, gender equality, to engage and to work toward the achievement of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals or Global Goals. And also, um, before we close our program, um, I would encourage you um, to contact your members of Congress to support the work of WHO, uh, the World Health Organization. And you can do this by texting PANDEMIC to 738-674. So, Mark, thank you once again for hosting today. And a special thank you to everyone for participating in today's UN75 consultation on global health. At the end of the day, UNAUSA can, cannot complete its work um, by advocating for the UN and for a better planet without your efforts and support. Thank you once again. I hope you all stay safe and stay well. All right. Thank you all. Thank you again to UNA USA. And again, uh, please do fill out that survey linked to in the show notes of this episode. Uh, the results will go directly to uh, the United Nations. Thank you. I will right, we'll see you next time. Bye.